The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hi, everyone. I'm Becky Strum, Managing Editor at Mansion Global, and I'm joined today by John Woolishin, Head of uh, U.S. Real Estate at UBS Global Wealth Management. Uh, Welcome back, John. Uh, Hi, Becky. Thanks for having me again. Uh, A reminder to our viewers now um, to ask questions at any time, and I'll try to get to as many as possible. Um, Earlier this week, property consultants Knight Frank released their annual wealth report, uh, and a a theme that was repeated throughout uh, was that uh, rental growth is strong relative to sales prices, uh, and it's attracting investors uh, and providing an alternative for income for those who have maybe second, third, or fourth homes already. Um, so, John, we've written a lot about this idea that wealthy individuals are camping out in the rental market in places where they may have otherwise bought, uh, and they're waiting to see where interest rates go and other economic uncertainties. So what uh, effect has this had on high-end rental prices? Yeah, uh, it, it, it's a fair question, and I think it's really important to define high-end Because uh, in my studies of the real estate market over many years, high-end means different things to different people. So when I think of high-end, and, you know, obviously, please guide me if you want to talk about different levels. I sort of trifurcate the market into what I call the sub-$500,000 market, uh, the kind of 500000 north of 500000 maybe less than three to five million, and then north of five million. Uh, and so, I mean, if we take what I'll call the, the, the very high end, the north of five million, you know, there's still been a fair amount of activity there. It just seems that the higher we go up, both the price and the wealth spectrum, the less impact things like mortgage rates and the sell-off in the stock market have seemed to have. Now, that said, we've seen a tremendous tremendous increase, not only in prices of luxury retail, uh, both here in the U.S. and in a number of cities globally, but we've seen rents and interest rates go up dramatically. So clearly that is having an impact on people's behavior. And, you know, one of the things that when when we started studying the the single family home for rent business uh, a number of years ago, we came up with a phrase uh, which is maybe a little indelicate. We called it putting on training wheels to see what homeownership is like. Well, it's really no different in the Uber luxury market. People who are considering putting down, you know, north of $10 million on a home, they really want to get comfortable with the area. Uh, and so even if that means spending, you know, upwards of 60, 70, possibly $100,000 a month on rent uh, to get comfortable, that is certainly worth it for them, particularly when we're talking about rates being as high as they are, number one. And number two, even if they were going to pay cash, there is opportunity cost of using cash. Right, right. And so, um, for example, another report that we recently wrote about um, sales uh, said that luxury rents across um, uh, an index of 30 major financial cities has grown. It grew around 6% in 2022. And that was outpacing the sales market in terms of price increases. So are rental price gains perking the ears of investors? Yeah, and and I think the answer depends. I mean, if we're looking at uh, the more modest luxury or mass luxury, as we call it, 
BS? You know, I think the answer is somewhat. I think once people start to think about what does it mean to be a landlord, that may or may not change their view. But I think where we're seeing certainly more of an impact is in is in the very high end luxury market. You know, whether it's the, the mountain areas here in the U.S., your Jackson Holes, your Aspens of the world, or, or going to some of the you know the large international cities, Hong Kong, Singapore, Dubai, among others. You know, certainly it is a way for people to get comfortable with those surroundings. Uh, so a- absolutely. It, it is having an impact on, on, on people thinking, you know, especially when we've seen uh, for the first time in many years, your traditional 60-40 portfolio uh, do very poorly in 22 and private real estate do quite well. They're looking for alternatives where they can get non-correlated investments with good yields. Right. And of course, we're coming off a like three year span where second home markets boomed, the Aspens, the South Floridas um, of the world. So um, are more clients, you know, playing with the idea of renting out those second or third homes or fourth homes that they bought over the last few years? Yeah, I think the answer is depends. Uh, you know, we you know we have the great luxury of UBS of working with you know a, a tremendous number of of of, of clients around the world. And I think it depends on the client. A number of these clients do own multiple residences, but they own them as multi-generational residences. And for them, you know, these are, I mean, they could, they, they're at their choices. You know, we can either choose to stay in a hotel or we like the permanency. You know, others are saying, look, the market is very, very strong. Uh, I only use this property a few weeks a year. Why not take advantage of it? So I don't want to say the answer is yes, 100% across the board, uh, but clearly, especially, um, you know, when we're looking at alternate ways of getting income, you know, particularly out of a sunk cost, which, you know, real estate is, yes, clearly that. That is, is something that we're seeing more and more of. Right. I also wonder if uh, people that may have turned to selling the asset right now are, are sort of considering whether renting is a better option, considering the sales market is is in flux and has a lot of question marks around it. Well, the sales market's in flux. But again, I think it is it is definitely by price point and location. Sure. Uh, yeah. You know, you know, one of the things that we spend a lot of time talking to clients about uh, is quality of life. Now, quality of life can be a euphemism for a number of things. And, you know, one, you know, one of the things that we witnessed during COVID and, the, and what we hope is a post-COVID period is that there are some cities, particularly around the U.S., where, you know, quality of life, and I think we can all figure out what that is a euphemism for, has been a challenge. And so we're seeing a lot of people saying, you know, I'm not necessarily going to sell my residence there but do I want to live there full time? So I think that is certainly one, one key consideration. You know, an, another one is, look, notwithstanding some of the challenges in the, the lower end of the housing market, remember the way I trifurcated it earlier, uh, that, yeah. Uber, that Uber luxury market is still doing extraordinarily well. You know, I think the one area where maybe we're seeing some softness is here in Billionaire's Row in New York City. Uh, And and there's just been a lot of new capacity built. But if you go down to South Florida, uh, if you go out to any of the the mountain regions, whether it's the Yellowstone Club, whether it's Aspen, whether it's Jackson Hall, those are Deer Valley. Those markets remain extraordinarily strong. 
Um, some of the biggest rental gains, uh, at least when we look globally, were really not in the U.S. They were places like Dubai and Lisbon, which saw monthly rents for luxury homes rise 20 percent or more in 2022. Uh, what is your advice or what do you tell clients who are thinking about renting in a place they don't live uh, or becoming landlords? I mean, uh, in a place where they don't live or only occasionally travel to. Yeah, well, I have I have this this conversation a lot with clients, uh, irrespective of whether it's domestic or international. And the very first thing I say is, do you want to be a landlord? Do you want to get that three a.m. call? The odds are, when we're talking about this kind of price point, they're going to have a property manager. So that, in and of itself, is not the issue. So there are a number of considerations. You know, number one. Uh, when you own an individual resident, be it a single family home or a condominium, your occupancy is either 100 or zero. That's number one. So you need to think about that. Number two is the cash flow covering your monthly costs. And when you're talking about Uber luxury properties, uh, those costs can be pretty significant between HOA fees, uh, taxes, uh, and and whatever else that you know that may be going on there. Uh, then when you get into international investing, knowing local property laws is crucial. While the, you know, the markets that you've highlighted, uh, I think the risks are low. And uh, by the way, I don't profess to be an international real estate expert. Uh, right. One always has to think about the risk of nationalization. Uh, again, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but these are things we need to think about. And, law, and laws do change. And so we strongly advise our clients who are thinking of doing this internationally is to hire very, very good local attorneys and very, very good local realtors to really understand the lay of the land, understand the different submarkets, because submarket analysis is no different globally than it is in the U.S., and really understanding local property laws. Because the one thing that, you know, I would say about the U.S. is we have the best property laws in the world. And you want to make sure those property laws are, are strong wherever one's thinking of investing. Right. Are there what are some um, whether you know domestic or foreign or wherever, what are some other risks that prospective landlords should consider, especially in the, if, if thinking about that luxury or uber luxury uh, market? Uh, well, I mean, if you look at, and there's been some interesting articles about who some of the renters have been, particularly in some of these international markets, and I don't want to pick on any one country or anything, but you want to make sure that uh, to the extent that you can, you can do good background checks. You don't want to be renting to fugitives. Uh, you don't want to be renting to people who have checkered pass. And so... Uh, you know, obviously beyond the obvious of, you know, damage to the apartment, what you want, don't want to risk is being embroiled in what could be potentially be an international financial challenge or what have you. And now, again, this is a little beyond the scope of my expertise, but you really want to vet your, I mean, you always want to vet your potential tenants, but when you're talking about bringing in potential tenants from countries, especially those that maybe uh, we have challenged relationships with, I think it, extra due diligence is really crucial here. Right, right. And you don't want someone's assets frozen or something like that while they're your tenant. <laughs> exactly. Because what will happen is governments will say, let's freeze everything first and we'll sort it out later. Exactly. Right. In the meantime, you've lost cash flow. So. Yes. Um, so I do want to talk about financing. Um, a large portion of luxury purchases are all cash, obviously. But, uh, you know, what it would be the rationale at this moment for someone to mortgage a home they could theoretically buy outright, whether it's a rental or a primary residence? 
Yeah. And, and so, look, the, the financing decision is clearly a very, very personal one. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we always strongly advise our clients when they're thinking about whether it's a primary residence, secondary, tertiary, what have you, is to think about their entire financial plan. They're, you know, we find a lot of times with clients, they say, oh, my house is over there and I'm going to talk about all my other investments. And we think it's crucially important that everything be looked at in total. And right. so, you know, when when clients ask uh, and we have conversations about this, one of the things we always ask about is near term, midterm and long term liquidity needs, uh, because especially when we're talking about buying uber luxury properties, these are very, very large purchases. And so if there are near to midterm liquidity needs, that has to be part and parcel of the conversation. Uh, if liquidity is not an issue. Uh, then the question becomes, number one, what is the cost of financing, which is obviously higher today than it was a year ago? Uh, number one, if I'm going to rent it out, uh, can, you know, you know, we talked about this earlier, you know, can I cover more? Can I at least cover my, you know, my cash outflow, if not get a return on that? Uh, then the other thing is and we see a lot of clients do this where they'll pay cash and then they'll then they'll take money out, whether it's a securities back loan uh, or some other you know, home equity. So th there's a lot of different ways to approach this. The one thing I will tell you, particularly in a very hot market, cash is king. And if your goal is to make that purchase and you have the ability to finance it afterwards, you know, cash is certainly going to carry a lot, a lot more weight than if you bring in a financing contingency. Right, right, right. Yeah, we've written recently about sort of alternatives to just taking out a mortgage from the get-go. Um, including, you know, like intrafamily loans and things like that, which have lower rates. Is that right? Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, so looking at sort of trends in the buy to rent folks, you know, are there particular places where investors are purchasing right now? Yeah, I think, again, it's going to go back to depending on what price point we're talking about. Sure. You know, there, there's there's the, what I'll call the lower end where you've seen, you know, post the global financial crisis, the, uh, you know, the, the what I call the institutionalization of single family homes for rent. When you saw a lot of private equity and a lot of Wall Street money and hence some of these companies went public, you know, that's that's a fairly ubiquitous market. But they're playing, you know, typically, in, unless you're in California or the West Coast in the sub 400,000 dollar market. Right. Uh, you know, buy to rent um, as the, you go further up the price scale, um, you know, it's going to vary. I think you're going to see much less of, oh, it is specifically uh, going to be a buy to rent forever. Now, what we are seeing some clients do is say, I want to get comfortable with an area, but ultimately this will be a multi-generational house for me. So they'll say, look, I'm going to rent it, pick a number, three, five, seven years. But, you know, I have children and grandchildren. I want this to be, you know, something in my family. So that is something we're definitely seeing. And that's something that does make a lot of sense because, you know, those rental payments, particularly if you can get, you know, very, very heavy rental payments, which, you know, just looking at some recent data, those numbers can be pretty can, be pretty impressive. Uh, that 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 does make sense to help to help defray some of the costs for several years before this ultimately becomes a you know a, a, a multi generational family abode. Right, right. Um, back to that wealth report. Something that kind of perked my ears as an editor was that uh, a small note that um, the yields uh, in the rural or or uh, suburban areas of the UK are uh, better than London. And I wonder if that's a trend that you see in the US where um, perhaps the yields for landlords are a bit 
better outside of the major cities? Uh, you know, it, it really depends. You know, obviously yields are a little bit in flux. They, I, you know, generally when we look at them, yields have not quite caught up with the move in interest rates yet, uh, but they're, yeah, but they're getting there. Uh, so I would look, I would say in the U.S. and it's very, very hard to generalize this. Yeah. Um, you know, look, the when we talk to the the public companies that do single family rentals, and again, they're playing in a much different price point. You know, they're still looking at yields that probably have sixes in them. Not, you know, personally, and I tend to think of life in terms of, among other things, risk-adjusted return. So, uh, you know, when I run numbers and I ran some numbers just looking at some different cities around the world, I just assumed a 7% return. And I think, in, in you know, in a world that is certainly a little bit more uncertain, and, you know, this is a phrase I use a lot in meetings with clients. I'm an analyst who covers real estate. I'm not a real estate person and became an analyst. And, and the importance of that phrase to not only to me, to our clients, and hopefully to our listeners is that there are three things that have never gone out of style in my almost 39-year career. And that's free cash flow. It's, it's proper underwriting. And what I mean by underwriting is not just how you underwrite the debt, but how you, what assumptions you make. And it's risk-adjusted return. Now, we, now, that's a tad amorphous, and I understand that because we all have different views of risk, but really risk-adjusted return is crucial. And so in this world of uncertain, you know, uncertain economic growth, uncertainty about the Fed and rising rates, to me, I think you know, risks have risen. Therefore, your returns have to rise concomitantly. So to me, I think starting out at least at a seven yield uh, is something that makes sense to me. And certainly, if you get, get, could get higher, great. Um, so we have some audience questions related to this topic. Um, Bob is asking, what cities or towns command the maximum annual rents? What are, what are the 99.8 percentile monthly rents in these locations? Uh, you might not have that off the top of your head, but uh, for, for the ultra luxury, I guess, what, what cities or towns command the, the maximum annual rents? Yeah. So, uh, you know, so good, good question, Bob. And uh, the data that I have, uh, and this is as of the end of 22, so it's fairly current. Now, I now I've based this uh, on a 7,500 square foot luxury uh, luxury unit. And you know, look, those obviously unit sizes can can uh, can vary dramatically. So the major cities are really, I mean, New York's still coming in at number one. Uh, I'm sorry, I have to refer to my notes here. So Hong Kong, Los Angeles, Tokyo, London, Singapore, and Paris, uh, that's sort of the order of what cities are commanding the, the highest rents. You know, that said, I will tell you that I, you know, I've tangentially looked at some of the mountain towns here in the United States, you know, be it Deer Valley, be it, Deer Valley, be it Aspen, be it uh, um, Jackson Hole, and you're seeing some pretty heady rents there as well. There's a tremendous amount of money that has gone into these markets, and people are willing to pay extraordinary rents upwards of a hundred, you know, depending on the property, upwards of a hundred thousand dollars a month. Wow, wow, yeah. So I imagine these places are competing now in in terms of uh, seasonal rents for places like the Hamptons, et cetera. Now it's the similar price ranges for oh for yeah. Them. I mean, when I, when, yeah, when I look at rents in the Hamptons for August for, you know, I'm talking beachfront properties in Southampton, further lane in East Hampton, the numbers will be in the six figures very easily. Wow. 
Um, so I do want to spend a little bit of time talking just about the broader real estate market um, because I want to touch on all your expertise. So does, uh, does UBS at this point sort of have a mortgage rate prediction for the remainder of the year? So, so we don't forecast mortgage rates. We do forecast 10-year treasury yields. And uh-huh. so, in fact, uh, uh, so we do a strategy call every Thursday, which we did yesterday afternoon. And so our head of fixed income strategy, you know, clearly, I think with the latest inf- uh, inflation data we've gotten, we're taking we're taking our, our year end 23 target for the 10 year. Uh, and that's not official yet. So I, mean, I don't want to give a specific number, but let's say we're talking about at the end of 23 being somewhere in the low to mid three range. So if we look historically there's been about 170 basis points spread over a very long term between the 10-year treasury and the 30-year fixed rate mortgage. So that would imply somewhere between 470 and 5. However, right now we're above that because of the extreme volatility in interest rates, number one. Uh, and number two, uh, and this is getting a little wonky, You know, if we look at the differences between what's called the primary and the secondary mortgage rate, there is some dislocation there. So that is put rates. So we're sitting here today called a 4% 10-year, and we're looking at roughly a 7% 30-year fix, and you got a 300 basis point spread. So, I mean, it's ultimately going to depend on a lot of things. You know, what is the Fed doing? What is the volatility of rates? But that's the best way I can answer the question, Becky. I don't know that your average home buyer is looking at that spread and thinking, okay, well then, you know, theoretically interest rates will come down or, or mortgage rates will come down. But I, I do think that, you know, just from seeing um, uh, activity slow with the upswing again in mortgage rates, you know, I wonder if we're headed into a pretty subdued spring buying season. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, it's interesting that we've just gone through earnings season and now it's conference season. So we've heard some fairly recent commentary from a lot of the home builders. And, you know, this is one of my favorite phrases on Wall Street. Things are actually less worse than you think they would be. Uh, Now, that is really a function of we did have a pullback in rates uh, several weeks ago. So when you had a move down in mortgage rate from 7% to the low sixes, that did get a few people off the sidelines. But what is really going on, particularly with the larger public builders who have captive mortgage companies, uh, there's a lot of ways to lower price. You can obviously lower prices outright, which is something they don't like to do because it tends to upset their prior customers. Uh, They can give incentives, which could be upgraded fixtures and added bonus room. But one of the big things we're seeing is what's called mortgage rate buy downs. So if somebody were to go out today and say, geez, I'd have to get a 7% 30-year fixed rate mortgage, yeah, the right. mortgage company, their, their, their mortgage company will basically eat the difference and do what's called a mortgage buy-down and say, okay, we can get you in. I'm making numbers up here. I, we can get you in at 575. Right. Uh, and so that's just another way effectively of lowering prices. So we are seeing that. So look, if rates stay elevated, yes, that is going to have an impact. We've done a lot of work on affordability. Uh, now, a lot of ways to measure affordability, but one of the ways we look at it is looking at median monthly payment, just principal and interest now, relative to median household incomes. And that number uh, is well above where we were at the peak of the housing bubble. Now, I want to be clear before anybody runs out and says, oh, my God, UBS is going to crash. That's not what we're saying. We're just saying affordability is certainly much more stretched than it was before. So we look, we ultimately think the home builders have done a brilliant job of managing liquidity and balance sheets. So they have the ability to do this. 
But do we think relative to a year ago, is it going to be more subdued? And let's rates pull back dramatically. We think the answer is yes, it will be. Right, right. And, you know, to the flip side is sellers. And I think even interest rates are scaring sellers because they are looking at that and they're thinking, OK, if I list now, I'm going to have to discount or I'm going to have to take less than I than I was expecting for my home. You know, what are you telling sellers right now? Should they be scared off or is there a case to just go ahead and list and try yeah. the market? I wouldn't necessarily agree with the statement that they might have to take less Uh, Right now, and I'll tell you why, there is an absolute dearth of supply of both new and existing homes, particularly the existing home market. So there's no such thing as a national housing market. But if we look across the country, if a normalized market is six months of supply, we're sitting here at about three months. Uh, I live up in Westchester County, northern Westchester County. There's less than a month of supply. I was just talking to a friend yesterday whose wife's a realtor in northern Jersey. Same story. I've been in about eight different markets over the last six months, same story. And so it is a seller's market in the sense that there's very, very little inventory. But the risk for the seller is unless they are, you know, they are moving out of the area, they are choosing to downsize. The realities are of the two thirds of the homes that are mortgaged, the the other third are are mortgage free. Most of them have a mortgage rate below 4%. So to sit there and sell your home at, you know, call it a three and a half percent mortgage rate just to make up a a reasonable number to walk into a 7% is going to be challenging. So uh, I don't think it's necessary that they're going to take less for them. What they're going to say is, um, well, you know, what am I staring down the barrel of? But, it's right. like that, let's do, but let me take an example. If you have somebody who's moving from, say, Silicon Valley, where a starter home is $2 million, right. and say, I want to move to the west coast of Florida, uh, there are some beautiful areas in the west coast of Florida. The bang for the buck they can get uh, moving from Silicon Valley into the is very different. So it really depends what they're doing. But if somebody says, I just want to sell my house to move to another house within my area, that's certainly going to be a challenge just from a pure, you know, unless they're paying cash, it's going to be a challenge from a, a mortgage cost perspective. Right. It sounds like downsizers should, should still consider selling since they would theoretically be be able to cover the cost of whatever that next home might be. In yeah. Theory. I mean, look, I'll just tell you this. I t- my friend I talked to yesterday, his wife's the realtor. She lost out on a deal to 12 bidders. So, I mean, that's a market <laughs> with no supply. Right. <laughs> um, where are the pockets of strength in the U.S.? We've been talking sort of like broadly about the U.S. housing market, but are there, I'm, you just mentioned a place with, uh, with you know, 12 bidders. Um, where, where is buying activity still extremely strong? I'd say Florida, uh, and obviously Florida is a big state. Uh, South Florida, Southeast Florida, and the West Coast of Florida. Uh, and actually, you can go all the way up to Jacksonville, uh, and you can go over in the Panhandle. Florida is probably the strongest market in the country. Uh, you know, obviously, there's been a ton of in-migration both people and businesses into Florida. Uh, we put together a chart, which we're you know we're happy to send to any of the listeners. And we looked at the uh, we looked at we took forty of the biggest markets in the country and looked at the movement in prices from January twenty seventeen to uh, to December of twenty two, and then we looked at the change in price from the peak 
to where we were at the end of December 22. And the Florida markets screen amongst the best markets out there. Now, there are some markets that you've seen greater pullback because they just moved so quickly. You know, whether it's in Austin, Texas, a Boise, Idaho, where I was two weeks ago, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, which I always say most people can't find on a map. Those have been some of the strongest markets in the country. So, I, you know, on one hand, people are saying, oh, my God, these prices are down 10, 12, 15 percent. But in the case of, say, Coeur d'Alene, those prices were up almost 140 percent since 2017. Boise up 110 percent. Austin up, you know, 90, 95 percent. So I think it's important to put in context. But if I had to pick one market that I think is still really, no pun intended, on fire, it's Florida. Yeah. All right. Um, So Robert uh, from our audience um, is wondering the current and near forward relationship between luxury residential markets in uh, and residential markets in the U.S. So luxury, how is luxury moving with the mainstream market? Uh, the uh, depending on how we're defining luxury, if I define luxury as you know, go back to my trifurcation, I'm taking that top third, that Uber luxury. I think there is definitely a disconnect there. Okay. Uh, you know, again, with the exception of Billionaires Row in New York, which has been slower. Uh, you know, you know that what I'll call Uber luxury or very high end luxury, uh, that market is still very, very strong. Uh, and like I said, there are a lot of people who are just have not been impacted one way or another, whether it's rising interest rates, whether it's the you know nine trillion dollars that the S and P shed in twenty two, the eleven trillion that Nasdaq shed in twenty two. Uh, you know, the, these are people that are extraordinarily well healed. So generally, we are seeing a disconnect between what I'll call the mainstream housing market uh, and the Uber luxury market. Um. We have another audience question. Uh, someone's asking uh, how you got a six to seven percent yield. Uh, they uh, Hal says I see more like two to three percent. Uh, well, the two to three percent that is looking at long term price appreciation, mm-hmm. and that's actually a very accurate historical number. I'm got I'm talking about getting a yield on on the rent versus what you know what your basis in the house is, and so I got that based on. You know, looking at where uh, where apartment development yields are, where rental yields are in apartment, where they are in single family, and where kind of you know commercial real estate yields are in general. That's kind of where I got to the number. So I just want to make sure we're not mixing apples and oranges here. Right, right, right. Um, so, sort of as a closing question here, there tends to be a lot of alarmist language right now about the housing market because things changed overnight, and so you know prices coming down in the first time in a decade, for example. I mean, I guess what are the red flags that you would look for? What are the real red flags that should hurt people's ears and concern people? Yeah. So for, uh, first, I want to I want to address some of the uh, the the screaming headlines uh, in the presentation that I use with our clients. Uh, my first my first slide says the housing market is clearly slowing, one of the great obvious statements of all time. But it's the second slide that's more important, which is this is not a repeat of 2008, 2009. And I go, you know, I won't bore everybody with the multitude of pages in there. But basically, the reasons are uh, the quality of mortgage underwriting is worlds better than it was. The absolute dearth of inventory, the twenty seven trillion dollars of equity that homeowners are sitting on, the better behavior by 
by buyers, by home builders, by lenders, by investors. So we think there are a lot of things that are drastically different. Now, it is not all sunshine and puppies out there. I want to be clear that there are risks. And obviously, you know, we have we have a Fed that, you know, is still actively tackling inflation. Uh, it's highly likely that they're going to raise rates two, if not three more times. But they will be data dependent. Uh, we talked about affordability. But to me, so the biggest risks are low. There's one risk. There's nothing we can do about it. It's geopolitical. God forbid something major happens. It, it's unanalyzable and we can't. So what I always say is, and I do, and I write a lot about this, I think the biggest risk is policy. Uh, now, whether that policy is monetary, whether it's fiscal, whether it's politically driven, well, we put out a report last week, uh, and uh, the FHA, which is overseen by Housing Urban, Urban Development, just lowered their um, their mortgage insurance fees. Now, I think given what they did, does it pose a, a huge risk? No, but you know, look, everything has to, you know, there, with the old Chinese proverb, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Uh, and the one thing, as I said, that has made this cycle so much different from the prior cycle is the fact that mortgage underwriting was was better. And when you start to bring politics into business, sometimes, you know, and I'm not here to criticize anybody, I'm just here to understand policy, that when you have policy driven for reasons that are are counterintuitive to economics, sometimes you can run into risk. I'm also very cognizant we have a presidential election coming up sooner. You know, it'll be here before we know it. Uh, And this is not to pick on any party because who's ever in charge wants to stay in power. And so that is, I think, policy is going to be the biggest risk. I don't think there's a risk of overbuilding. The home builders have been extraordinarily well disciplined here. So if I start to see, you know, more policy decisions made, you know, whether it's, you know, the government where they can control uh, you know, lending standards, or if they start forcing banks to make bad loans again, we saw that movie. We know how it ends. Yeah. Hasn't happened so far, but that's where my biggest worry is. Right. Um, so that's all the time we have today. John, thank you so much for being here. And thank you to our audience for tuning in. Uh, my pleasure. Thank, thank you for having me. Happy to join anytime. Uh, so please, to our audience, please join us uh, again on Monday. Senior uh, Baron Senior Managing Editor Lauren Rublin and Deputy Editor Ben Levison will talk with Thomas Kennedy, Chief Investment Strategist of Global Wealth Management at J.P. Morgan, about the outlook for the economy and financial markets and investment strategies. Thank you for listening all. Have a great weekend. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.